my pleasure this morning to introduce Michelle Graham. Uh, Michelle Graham is a researcher at the Wild Animal Initiative. Her projects have included the categorization and prioritization of research topics and interventions uh, aimed at reducing wild animal suffering. She's currently pursuing a PhD in engineering mechanics at Virginia Tech. Her dissertation concerns the movement behaviors of jumping and gliding snakes. Uh, previously, she studied physics and philosophy at the University of Oxford. She's worked with animals on farms, in shelters, and in zoos. Um, if you have any questions for after the session, please submit them via the Visible app and join me in uh, welcoming Michelle to the stage. So yeah, evolution, commonly misunderstood concept, but also commonly discussed. So it's really common to have intuitive notions about how traits are inherited and develop over time that unfortunately don't always match perfectly with reality. And that makes it quite difficult to uh, make good predictions about how um, traits develop and change over time. So today, I just wanted to go over some of the basic concepts of evolution and engage with some of the reasons why evolution is so important for wild animal welfare, and then also talk about some objections to working on wild animal welfare that rest on evolutionary concepts. So um, first of all, I just want to make sure I answer the question in my talk, which is, what is fitness? Uh, and it is the likelihood of a particular set of traits enabling the organism that has them to contribute offspring to the next generation. And this is, you know, important to clarify because I think fitness is often misunderstood as representing health or strength. Uh, and really in Darwinian fitness or evolutionary fitness, health and strength are only relevant insofar as they contribute to reproductive success. Um, so the beneficiary of evolution is sort of genes, the sense in which things survive or survive with fitness is that genes that tend to produce uh, positive reproductive outcomes tend to continue through the generations. And evolution uh, in general is as much about genes as it is about organism, organisms. So although there is more than one way to define evolution, perhaps the most common is based on allele frequency. And this is like how it's commonly put, the process by which allele frequency changes in a population over time. Um, so just to clarify, like an allele is a specific qualitative version of a gene. Uh, so for example, we all have genes for hair color, but I express the allele for brown hair color. Um, the changes in allele frequency that occur in evolution uh, take, you know, are accomplished through various evolutionary mechanisms. So the most famous that you've probably all heard of is natural selection, but natural selection is not a synonym with evolution. There are, are more than one evolutionary mechanism. And these other mechanisms include things like sexual selection, genetic drift, mutation, and gene flow. Uh, and it's important to note that some of these mechanisms are not necessarily adaptive. Uh, and to clarify what I mean by that, let me take the example of gene flow, which is also known as migration. Um, this is the transfer of genes from one population to another. So if we have, for example, uh, two populations of dogs that are reproductively isolated, uh, migration will introduce new genes to one population. When an individual from one population migrates or introduces its genes, primarily through sexual reproduction, into the new population. So the result of this population blending is that you get a greater variety of alleles for the particular traits, for example, for size or color, from the introduction of those new genes. Uh, and it's important to note, again, when I'm talking about this adaptiveness, there's no reason why this change in color is, is like, leads to better outcomes for those animals. It's just a fact of those, uh, and that those new genes being introduced that leads to this variation. It's not necessarily adaptive. But when we are thinking about adaptive outcomes, we're normally talking about natural selection. 
Uh, and this is the process by which some sets of traits tend to lead to greater reproductive success than others. Um, and so we often think of natural selection as being primarily about survival, but ultimately survival is only important to the extent that it leads to uh, a larger reproductive output or re larger reproductive success. And so just to clarify how it works, um, in order for an animal to pass its genes on to the next generation, it has to survive long enough to reach reproductive age, it has to find a mate, and it has to actually reproduce. So if we have an example where we've got both brown and green ants, say, and for whatever uh, reason, the brown ants are more reproductively successful than the green ants, we'd expect the relative proportion of brown ants to increase over time. Um, it's important, like, like critically important to note that this is like a relationship with the environment. The facts about what things have more reproductive success is not a fact inherent to those traits. So as an example, like let's say in one context, this, these brown ants are more successful, but then a predator is introduced to the environment that can see the brown ants much more clearly, then being a brown ant is probably no longer successful. Um, and it's also like, important to think about reproduction, uh, reproductive success or lateral selection as like coming about through the elimination of traits that don't succeed rather than the promotion of like the perfect trait. Um, there's lots of constraints on evolution, and so things that don't succeed tend to disappear, and that's different from things that are amazing, like just spring up out of nowhere. So there are several requirements for evolution by natural selection to occur. Uh, the first is that there must be variation. So if we're thinking about how natural selection might select on color. If we only have white bears in a population, there's no sense in which being a different color is able to like confer greater fitness, so there's just going to continue to be white bears. Uh, the traits also must be heritable, so if some for some reason being blue is a selective advantage, I don't know, maybe like the other bears like the blue bear, uh, but like it's only because I painted that bear blue, like it's not heritable, so you're not gonna, you know, the subsequent generation is still all gonna be white. Um, and then finally, there must be differential reproduction. So we would expect that if blue bears are more reproductively successful, there's going to be more uh, blue bears produced in the subsequent generation, so you get that change in allele frequency. If for whatever reason there's variation, but each individual merely creates a replacement for itself, the, that relative frequency of alleles will not change. So. I'm talking a lot about all these evolutionary concepts, but considering these, uh, you know, what we want to consider is these potential interactions between these evolutionary results and welfare. Um, so this brings me to the topic of how evolution and wild animal welfare uh, intersect. So those things I just mentioned about variation and heritability, we have some reason to think things like brain structure and certain kinds of behaviors, they're vary and they vary and they may be heritable to a greater or lesser extent. And so we should anticipate that natural selection will act on these and other potentially welfare relevant traits. So evolution therefore plays a really important role in three uh, main questions of welfare biology, which are which animals are moral patients, what problems do these animals face, and what can we do to address these problems? So considering the first question, a solid understanding of evolution will help us generate hypotheses about what organisms have characteristics that lead them to be moral patients. So if we look at some methods from evolutionary biology, this is a phylogenetic tree where the ends of uh, the like little endpoints on the far side here represent different species and the connections represent common ancestors. So let's say that like we knew for sure that the ability to experience pain was a heritable trait and we discovered that this species and this species both had that. Um, it's a common sort of way, there's like a method in uh, evolutionary biology called ancestral state reconstruction where you, uh, you know, it's a reasonable hypothesis to suggest that probably the common ancestor of those two species also had this trait. 
Um, that is like a parsimony-based argument, and it generates a hypothesis about what would occur. Uh, and you know, it's not impossible that it evolved multiple times. It's just uh, you know a reasonable hypothesis that it uh, evolved there. And then, in, if that was the case, you would expect the common ancestors, uh, the common the, the animals that uh, share that common ancestor, to potentially also have that trait. Again, that's an ancestral state reconstruction. Considering uh, another important question in welfare biology, when we want to generate hypotheses about what the effects of an intervention will be, we also need to consider evolution very carefully because our actions intersect with evolution. An example of a situation where a human intervention led to significant evolutionary results is the introduction of cane toads in Australia. In the 1930s, cane toads were introduced as a way of trying to control the cane beetle, which was a pest species on uh, sugarcane crops. But cane toads have these poison glands that you can see on the sides of the head. Um, and snakes that were not used to having to deal with poisonous prey items would eat these toads. Uh, and what we've seen over a very short period, only a few decades, is that snakes who are vulnerable to trying to eat these toads have, ten, have on average, now have smaller head sizes and larger bodies. And this is because a snake is a gape-limited gape predator. So the smaller a snake's head is, the smaller amount of poison it can ingest because it can only eat smaller frogs. And the bigger its body is, the less likely a given dose of the toxin is to kill it. So its phenotype, its uh, characteristics it expresses, uh, when a snake has a relatively smaller head and a relatively larger body, protect it from this threat of the cane toad. Um, obviously, that intervention was not a welfare-based intervention, but it, it does show how evolutionary outcomes will accrue from our actions in nature. And so we need to consider carefully what the evolutionary results will be of our uh, actions. Finally, when we want to consider what the welfare value of different experiences are for different animals, it's important to think about uh, how evolution might play a role. So a reasonable working hypothesis about the purpose of pain is that it tells us to stop doing things that will harm us. So an animal that has no pain response to like getting an injury is less likely perhaps to avoid trying to get injuries. That means they're more likely to maybe die before they're able to successfully reproduce. Again, this is a hypothesis, but it's a commonly sort of used one. Uh, and if that's the case, we would expect that animals with different survival risks or reproductive strategies might end up with different responses to a given stimuli. So if you consider an aquatic frog, for example, whose life depends on the chemical content of the water around it, you might expect that it's going to be more sensitive to changes to that chemical content and more likely to experience pain if that content is non-ideal. Whereas, you know, if I go into a stream that happens to have a slightly less ideal than ideal uh, water chemical content, I'm probably not going to notice because it's very unlikely to affect my survival. So thinking about the kinds of experiences that animals have is very important to people who care about wild animal welfare. Uh, and that's, you know, there are just so many animals out there in the wild. Uh, thinking about ants in particular, there are between 10,000 and 100,000 trillion ants. Uh, and so just to like put that into a visual for you, if the line represents, if you like think of a line as representing the population of humans on the planet, there's like, you know, let's say 7.6 billion of us or whatever is like an, uh, one inch. The line that represents humans would be, uh, ants, sorry, would be between 20 and 200 miles long. Like, that's a lot of ants, you know? Um, and so, uh, like, 
when we, but you know, these animals are different from us, and they have different life history strategies, they have different reproductive needs, they have different survival needs. And so it's really important within the wild animal welfare community to focus on research, on understanding uh, what the needs of animals are, so that we can actually address the problems they face. And given how many of them there are, we should expect addressing their problems to be, like, really important. So I've talked a little bit about how evolution interacts with wild animal welfare, and now I want to engage with a couple of objections to working on wild animal welfare. Uh, one that I've heard uh, sometimes is that evolution shouldn't be interfered with because it results in the animals with the greatest fitness. It's not clear to me when people make this argument whether they think that fitness has intrinsic value, which I hope if I have defined uh, uh, fitness for you effectively, you would wonder why it would have intrinsic value. It's just reproductive success. Or maybe, potentially, they think that fitness is highly correlated with welfare, and that so they're then valuing instrumentally. Um, but for that argument to go through, it has to be the case that any increase in wild animal welfare requires interfering in an evolutionary process. It has to be the case that evolution always leads to maximal fitness. Uh, and it would have to be the case, if you care about it for welfare reasons, that high evolutionary fitness always leads to high animal welfare. And all of these are fake. <laughs> you know, that's not true. And uh, so to look at them in turn, um, some interventions do not influence reproductive output. So some examples would be changing our fishing practices uh, or changing uh, pesticides to be more humane. Both of those may have no influence on which animals die. It just uh, influences how they die. And so you could make that a higher welfare death. Um, also, there's this concept that like evolution always leads to maximal fitness, and that also is not correct. So evolution uh, is constrained by history and our genetic baggage, uh, and so there's many things that are not accessible to us based on the past of our uh, behavior. So if this is a curve that represents various traits, some of which are low fitness and some of which are high fitness, it could be the case that uh, current conditions are in this sort of local optimum, but because uh, small variations away from that local optimum are lower fitness, natural selection would continue to constrain to current conditions. And it may well be that human intervention is through perhaps genetic modification or breeding is what's able to move us into uh, the actual theoretical best fit. Finally, if we consider the idea that high evolutionary fitness leads to high animal welfare, we should be suspicious of that concept because if you think about rats uh, and elephants, these two uh, types of animal might both have different reproductive strategies where, say, the rat has tons of offspring but only one survives and the elephant has a single offspring that does survive. They have equal fitness. They've both produced one offspring, but the you know many rats uh, had to die under the rat model, uh, and that seems like a lower welfare result. It is possibly the case that high evolutionary fitness corresponds to high animal welfare in some cases. And if that's true, we want to investigate and understand that. And that brings me to the role of experimental research. Evolution is really complicated and not easy to make predictions about uh, from your armchair. So we think of the example of a polar bear. It was thought for many you know, years that the only reason polar bears were white is because of the camouflage. But if you actually look closely at uh, the hairs of a polar bear, they're see-through and their skin is black. And there's thermal event, uh, advant advantages to that combination. And so it's hard to predict because of these dual effects of like camouflage and thermal uh, advantages what the response of changes to the uh, fitness environment would do for polar bear color. So it's not always easy to like make up predictions about what evolution will do because of these complicated paired effects. 
Other factors that make evolutionary outcomes difficult to predict are that there are trade-offs where improvements in one trait will lead to uh, decrements in a different trait. Exaptations, which is where an animal has a trait that evolved for one purpose but is now used for another purpose. So example might be feathers, which evolved for thermal insulation but are now used for flight. Uh, there's also, as I mentioned, more than one uh, evolutionary mechanism, and some of them are somewhat random, and so there can just be random variations that make things hard to predict. And finally, there's also individual variation. Uh, evolution acts on species, not individuals. And if we care about individual welfare, we have to always be cognizant of the fact that an individual is not a perfect representation of its species, and there's going to be individual variation that affects welfare. So considering the complicatedness of evolution, there is another argument against the tractability of working on wild animal welfare that it's too complicated to do anything about. But I want to say that hard to predict is not the same as unmeasurable. And we have the ability to do uh, welfare biology that will move forward our ability to make good predictions uh, and better inform our ability to care about the welfare of animals in the wild. So if you agree and want to support the uh, efforts to do research in this space, I encourage you to go to our website where you can sign up for a newsletter and donate. Thank you. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Michelle. So um, I guess that, yeah, just leading on from kind of how you've closed, how do you see the wild animal suffering kind of space currently and, and how it's grown? And where do you think uh, kind of more input is, is needed? Mm, yeah. So I think it's a difficult question to say exactly what aspects should go at what rates at what times. I mean, we've got this one set of things, which is we just don't know what's going on out there and we need data. And then we've got this other set of things, which is that like huge numbers of people don't care about wild animals at all. Um, and I think, you know, you don't want to completely ignore one aspect of that over the other. Uh, but at the moment, I do think the most value we can have is in getting uh, spaces that already consider these questions about what's going on in the wild to frame them in a way that is more conducive to caring about wild animal welfare. So a good example would be that in conservation, uh, they already consider a lot of like ethical related questions tied to environmental outcomes. And there are people who care more or less about the welfare of wild animals. Uh, and so to get a conversation going in conservation about um, when, how we can take actions that improve welfare and how that, that caring about wild animal welfare, like of the, at the individual level rather than the species level, uh, is, is, fits in with the overall framework. And have you, have you seen any good examples of that yet or we're not quite there? Um, I think we have, you know, I can't cite one right off the top of my head, but I think there are definitely conservationists who are more or less interested in the projects we have ideas for and are curious about what we're doing. Certainly on our staff, we have someone who just recently finished a master's program in a conservation field. So it's definitely not the case that like every conservationist you talk to hears about this concept and is like, no, 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 that's not right. Mm -hmm. There's definitely people who are like, oh, that's very interesting. I want to know more. And so I think that is very possible to, to, to make happen. Yeah. Because I think often the first time people hear about wild animal suffering, it feels like it's a complete Mm. I don't know, yeah. a huge moment. Yeah, and I think it's it's complicated. You know, there's different ways that that can happen. For some people, like, they're already not at a place where they care about animals, and mm -hmm. so it's just this big shift to start incorporating animals into their worldview. For others, they've been told for so long that the way you care about, or, like, maybe not they've been told, that's maybe not the right way to say it, but there's, like, a cultural attitude that has been pervasive, that the way you conserve wildlife and the way you care about wildlife is by preserving habitat, by preserving mm -hmm. species. And this shift from thinking about species as the target of interventions to, like, wait, but what's happening to the animals within that species? What are their feelings? What are their needs? Mm -hmm. Is scary because all of a sudden you think, wait, have I been, like... 
I mean, this is this was exactly my response yeah. the first time I like considered wild animal welfare. I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so many out there, and they could all be suffering, and I don't want that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very important that we like do interact with that question and you know find those answers. Yeah. And then I've got a few questions from the audience. So, um, uh, are you concerned about how a focus on welfare might differentially impact our attention to R versus K selected species? Hmm. You could also define that. That'd be great. Yeah. So sure. So. Uh, R versus K selection is actually kind of slightly fallen out of fashion in life history mm-hmm. classification. There's still like relatively useful heuristics, but it's important to remember there are two ends of a spectrum. So the example I gave of the rats and the elephant are that um, R selected species or would be like kind of the rat model, where you produce a lot of offspring and maybe only a few of them survive, and then the other model is like producing few offspring and investing really strongly in those offspring. Um, I think a focus on welfare is definitely what you want to have. And if that means that you care about animals that tend towards the having lots of offspring who all die young, well, that's because there's a large number of those offspring who are dying young. Uh, and so to an extent, you know, it's just, I guess it's just an open question about what the welfare of those different groups is. Uh, and again, they're also not, it's a spectrum. It's not like you don't have things that only exist on one side and one that others that exist on the other. So. I, I'm, I'm not positive about what the impact of that would be, but if it is the case that our, like animals towards the R-selected side of the spectrum have much lower welfare, I do want to care about those animals more. Yeah. Okay, great. And then um, kind of ten- tangential. So in your estimation, uh, does our having a prefrontal cortex and so an ability to reflect upon our suffering uh, increase or decrease our capacity to suffer relative to animals with less uh, reflective capacity? I think that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I think I do not have any answer to it that's like, you know, definitive. My own opinion tends to be that like we are certainly on average over-focused on like processing capacity as a lens for moral weight. Like it doesn't necessarily, I certainly don't think we have strong evidence in favor of the idea that like you can only suffer or you're suffering or like your, your wealth, your welfare relevant emotions are like stronger only if you have like this strong intellectual capacity. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, you know, in my personal experience, when I have been in pain and I've been able to say, oh, I know that this is going to end. I know what caused this. It's actually easier for me to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so I can see it like it seems like a viable hypothesis to think that being less able to analyze your pain would make it more painful. Mm-hmm. Also, if my like if our general hypothesis about the evolutionary function of pain is correct, then it may be the case that uh, a lower ability to extract signal from uh, noise means or like means that pain signals need to be stronger for animals with less cognitive capacity in order to get them to respond to them effectively. Um, and so that's another reason to potentially think that. So like my like kind of gut feeling is that like less cognitive capacity leads to like a greater significance to weigh on their like uh, for pain responses or other welfare relevant traits but i'm i'm again yeah science needs yeah, yeah. to be done yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay great um yeah thank you so much michelle that was super insightful yeah thank you